Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. There's a paradox at the heart of modern life. On the one hand, we're more connected to each other than ever through digital technology. And on the other hand, we're more lonely. The pandemic was a high watermark for this, no doubt. But years before the pandemic, people were talking about an epidemic of loneliness in America. In 2010, 40% of Americans reported feeling lonely, which was about double what it was in the 1980s. And in a Gallup survey from February of this year, it's still estimated that 44 million Americans are dealing with significant loneliness. So, why is that? Technology is a big part of it, but it's not the whole story. The opportunities for real-life connection are still there. And yet, so many of us feel as alone as ever. You can see it in our private lives and in our politics. Whatever's going on, we've got to figure out how we got here. And more importantly, how we can move forward. I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Dr. Julie Holland. She's a psychiatrist and author whose new book is called Good Chemistry, The Science of Connection from Soul to Psychedelics. Julie takes on the epidemic of disconnection as both a social and neurochemical problem. The book combines wisdom from the history of psychology with modern research into the brain chemistry of attachment, all in service of guiding us out of what she calls a spiritual crisis. It's not exactly straightforward, but for Holland, one possible tool to lead us toward experiencing more interconnectedness is psychedelics. She's been an advocate of psychedelic therapies throughout her entire career. Julie says that the disconnection we're experiencing is doing us real damage, emotionally and physically. So what exactly does it mean to say that we're disconnected? At the time that I was working on good chemistry, there was an epidemic happening, and I was writing about an epidemic, but it wasn't COVID. It was this epidemic of loneliness and isolation and these deaths of despair. And it really felt to me like people not only were getting isolated from each other, but they were sort of getting isolated from themselves. You know, we were spending so much time on our phones and our laptops. Many of us are living in the city where we're like disconnected from nature. And I started feeling like that this was really a basis to a lot of our discomfort and our anxiety and our depression. A lot of it could really be sort of rooted back to the sense of disconnection from ourselves, from our meaning, from being a social primate. The way we live now really isn't natural for us. So that's really what good chemistry was about. Well, even that phrase, disconnected from ourselves, you know, I feel like when we're talking about disconnection, the assumption is that we're talking about our social relations, right? We're disconnected from other people. And obviously, we are often talking about that. 
But what does it mean to say that someone is disconnected from themselves? Is it about a misalignment between mind and body? Is it about being trapped in an inauthentic identity? Is it all the above? Well, I think authenticity really does have a place here. And I absolutely appreciate uh, that Brene Brown really brought it to our attention. But I can think of so many examples of sort of being disembodied, you know, where we're not really in touch with how we're physically feeling. And especially, I think, for women, we're taught to sort of not trust our bodies, that we can't really eat when we're hungry. We can't have sex when we're horny. You know, we have to tame all these biological desires that we have. And I would argue that men sort of have the same thing, that you're taught to act a certain way, you're taught to put away parts of yourself, and you end up being sort of disconnected from your, uh, dare I say, your soul, you know, your essence and what you're all about. You, you learn to modify that to fit in with society. You know, maybe your parents don't like it when you're sad or you're scared, so you learn to put those things away. And you end up sort of being like a little piece of who you are instead of the whole of who you are. And that's one of the things that's going to make you like physically uncomfortable and emotionally uncomfortable is having that sort of inauthenticity. There's a lot of Carl Jung quotes in this book. Yeah. Why Jung? Why is he such a, uh, a pivotal character in this book? What is it about his thought that mapped onto what you were trying to do? Well, you know, the thing about Jung is that I don't know if he was really officially uh, manic, but if you look at the Red Book, it kind of looks like the writings of somebody who's at least hypomanic, if not manic. And he was sort of hyper graphic. He wrote a lot. He drew a lot. And he talked a lot about the unconscious in a way that I think is more convincing and more sort of holistic yeah. and less sexist than Freud. The the quote in the first chapter is, people will do anything no matter how absurd to avoid facing their own soul. And that's a hell of a quote. And And Carl is obviously a better psychologist than me, but I often feel like the problem isn't necessarily or isn't exclusively that we're avoiding our true self. It's that we never really developed a true self in the first place, that we we start to define and judge ourselves very early on based on how others define and judge us. And we spend so much time cultivating this identity or this persona that we didn't really want or choose for the sake of acceptance. And that is a, a kind of wheel we keep spinning in for much of our lives. It is. And, and you know, even before social media, you would be sort of modifying your behavior to please your mother or your father or your priest in the town or your Boy Scout troop leader, whatever. There was always somebody you had to modify yourself for. But now with social media, you know, if you have sort of an audience of hundreds or thousands of people who are commenting on you, I could see why the sense of self gets smaller and smaller. The reason why I use that first young quote, by the way, is... I read a really interesting study about people who were left alone who would choose to give themselves a little mini electric shock as opposed to just be alone with their thoughts. They could measure how many minutes somebody would sit there doing nothing before they just decided to see what the shock felt like on themselves. And some people shocked themselves a shocking amount of times just out of boredom. Yeah. You know, I think we all have this. It's how you can just watch somebody, how long they sit before they grab their phone and start scrolling. Or, you know, it's hard for people to just be alone with themselves and with their thoughts. And I would say that with the 21st century technology, nobody has to anymore and very few people are. I think it's important to say that this need to connect isn't some psychological luxury. We really are programmed for connection in a very deep way. I mean, it's in our biology. And I think you should say a bit about that just so that is clear. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing you could say about the human species is that we're actually categorized as obligatorily gregarious. This means we're obligated to be friendly, to get along, to be social. We are social primates. And if we're not social, we're not going to survive. I mean, you think about like life back on the savannah, it takes a village for you to survive. You need people to help you build the shelter. You need people to help you go hunting. And you need somebody who's willing to create a family with you or your genes aren't going to survive. And so we are really sort of biologically primed to get pleasure from connection 
or we wouldn't survive. So some of this is really hardwired. And that's really, it's one of the messages of good chemistry is that we're hardwired to get pleasure from bonding and pleasure from creating families and creating dyads and unions. And yes, I know that they also make us miserable. I am a psychiatrist. You know, I married for like 27 years or something like I get that. But it is in our hardwiring that we are going to get pleasure from unions. We're going to have pleasure from sex, from orgasm, from nursing. And I talk a lot about oxytocin. It's sort of the the chemistry of connection. You know, if you have to put your finger on one hormone or neurotransmitter when you're talking about connection, I think oxytocin to me is the most obvious one. We've all heard about fight or flight as being like the key to our survival. But the truth is, our social skills really suck when we're in fight or flight. And our bodies can't repair or sleep or have sex or do any of the things that really help us survive day to day. You know, fight or flight is for those few instances when we're being chased, we have to evade or we have to attack. But like 90 plus percent of the time, you don't want to be in fight or flight. It's not good for your metabolism, your immune system, for sleep, for digestion, anything. You want to be in this other other thing, which is called the parasympathetic nervous system. And that is where oxytocin is. I mean, oxytocin, it's a hormone that acts all throughout the body, head to toe, but it also enables this trust and bonding. So when you have this sense of connection, and it could be eye contact across a crowded room, it could be athletes patting each other's butts after a touchdown, but any kind of connection like that, oxytocin will be there. But then what happens after the oxytocin is really kind of whatever your own proprietary blend of feel-good chemistry is, right? I mean, we've got endorphins, which are endogenous opioid-like substances. So we have like an internal opiate system. We have an internal cannabis system. We've got dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine. There's all these neurotransmitters that in their own sort of cocktail are going to make you feel good and make your body say, more please. I want more of this. The human body is just a spectacular drug factory, isn't it? It is. You know, one of the reasons why I chose to have natural childbirth with both my kids is that I really had a feeling my body was going to put on a hell of a show for me. And I really wasn't disappointed. I mean, I've uh, had lots of psychedelic experiences, all kinds of drug experiences. In between contractions, my pupils were dilated like basketballs and everything looked very glowy and trippy. And I kept turning to my partner, Jeremy, and saying, I feel so high right now. (laughs) It is miraculous what sort of drugs our brains will give our bodies when we need to. It's mostly, you know, adrenaline or norepinephrine, but there's something called PEA, which is basically the body's own psychedelic. It's a phenylethylamine. So it's actually in the group uh, that includes MDMA. But there is a time when your brain will almost sort of make you trip because you're in a very extreme state. So I do think our brains have the capacity to create all kinds of good chemistry and good drug-addled or drug-fueled experiences. I mean, that's part part of the silver lining of being human, I guess. Do we all have different needs when it comes to connection? I mean, we all need connection, but do some of us need more than others? Yeah, I think that's really a great question. I mean, first of all, I think it's fair to say that this book skews neurotypical. And somebody who is on the autism spectrum may really not identify as being built for connection or needing connection. And, you know, one theory of this autism spectrum is that there's some sort of dysfunction or derangement of the way that oxytocin works. Uh, And so some people are looking at giving oxytocin as a way of treating people on the spectrum. And I think that sort of has mixed results that I won't get into. But uh, trying to take oxytocin as an external drug doesn't seem to have nearly the effects of internal. But yeah, I think if you're, first of all, you know, there's attachment styles, right? If you are a secure attachment person and you are brought up in like a loving, cuddly household and your love language is like touch and cuddling and, you know, you're going to sort of be built that way, you're going to go out into the world wanting love, wanting physical connection. But uh, not everybody has that kind of childhood. And your childhood experiences do sort of set the tone for what your emotional needs are going to be, whether you have secure attachment or ambivalent attachment or anxious attachment. Not everybody is, is going to be comfortable in a secure relationship. And then the truth is not that many relationships are secure. You know, it's always a mixed bag. 
it's always challenging to get your needs met. And a lot of people have shame around what their needs are and shame around asking for their needs to be met. So it's challenging for everybody. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why people go to therapy. (laughs) And it just seems like the evolution of our species, at least for the last few centuries or so, has been in the direction of individualism. Definitely. I'm no authority, I'm no scientist, but it seems to me a major problem that we're building a world and we're trying to be fulfilled in a world that is deeply at odds with our own natures. That does not seem like a recipe for satisfaction and happiness. I agree completely. But the thing is, it is a little bit of an American culture. Like you don't see it in every culture around the world, but there is this sort of Wild West, John Wayne, tough guy, go it alone, James Dean that, you know, even I as a young girl growing up in the 70s, like I was trying to be a cowboy. And some of it really is America, this rugged individualism that they sell as part of capitalism. And you go to other countries And you see, like, not everybody lives this way. Not everybody treats each other like this. There are plenty of countries that really consider the needs of the society, and they're more sort of communally oriented or socially oriented. America could stand to be a little bit less rugged and individualistic. Honestly, I think that people would be healthier. I really do feel like a significant amount of what I would call our psychological pathologies have their roots in the fact that for the vast majority of our history, we have lived in these small groups where everyone shared core values and a way of being. And and in that context, material prosperity was mostly an unintelligible concept. You know, you worked for four or five hours a day for the sake of survival for the group. The rest of the time you were, I don't know, playing or singing or dancing or whatever. Yeah. You would share resources. Yes. Right. So ostracism in that context was like a death sentence. You really needed everyone to survive. You needed your tribe. And I'm not saying everything was awesome in prehistory or that I'd rather be alive 10,000 years ago. I I wouldn't. I'm good with today. But I am saying that our brains evolved under these conditions. We're still walking around with that hardware, right? Right. It's very true. And I'm glad you mentioned ostracism. You know, back in the cave person days, if you were ostracized, you were going to die. And so I think that ostracism puts us into fight or flight. It is stressful for us. Yeah. And we spend a lot of time making sure that we're okay with the group. And, you know, one of the things that was happening when COVID started, I had patients who were on Zoom calls all day long, and they couldn't understand why they were so exhausted by their Zoom call. And my theory was... You spend all your time scanning those faces to make sure you're okay in the group and you're not going to get kicked out and ejected. And you can't always see everybody's face and some people have their cameras off. And so you're always scanning, scanning. Am I safe? Am I in the group? Am I okay? And I think it is absolutely a basic part of our human nature and something that civilization has tried to breed out is interdependence. And interdependence is is not a bad word. No. I would argue that when you are in an interdependent state, because you are soothed by being connected, knowing somebody has your back, that ends up being like an anti-inflammatory state. So it's just better for your body. You know, your body can repair itself much better when it is not in fight or flight. And your social skills are much better when you're not in fight or flight. So it's it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy that if you get isolated, then you end up in fight or flight because you're ostracized and isolated. And when you are in fight or flight, you are in this kill or be killed paranoid mode, which is terrible for being social. And so around and around it goes. You know, the further marginalized you are, the more paranoid you are, the more stressed out you are, the worse your social skills are, the more you're going to be ostracized. If we're going to address this crisis of disconnection, we need to start speaking not just about our emotional well-being, but our spiritual well-being. Why can't modern psychiatrists do this? I'll ask Dr. Julie Holland after a short break. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline, because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. 
Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We're talking about these profound human needs, but they're metaphysical needs, right? This is different from bread and and shelter. But as you say, in the book, modern psychiatry has a really hard time talking about this. I mean, the way you put it is that it rejects the language of the soul. Yeah. Why is that? You know, I, I remember the first time I said soul in my office to a patient. She got really angry and and raised her voice. She was infuriated that I had said something about her soul and basically said to me, like, that's for my priest, not for you. So psychiatry and religion are supposed to be completely separate. But we do have these other needs that aren't physical, that aren't emotional, that, you know, you can give it whatever word you want. But there's something besides just mind and body at work here, you know? Well, is it because we're talking about, and again, that... There are physical consequences here we'll get to, but is it because we're talking about the needs of the soul that you call whatever we're experiencing now a spiritual crisis? That's very strong language, uh, especially from a physician, from a psychiatrist. Yeah, did I say spiritual crisis? (laughs) Yeah, you say that we're all collectively suffering a spiritual crisis. So the book I wrote before Good Chemistry was called Booty Bitches, and it's a book about sort of how women are over-pathologized and over-medicated. And the subtitle of that one, it's kind of long, is The Truth About the Drugs You're Taking, The Sleep You're Missing, The Sex You're Not Having, and What's Really Making You Crazy. And what was really making people crazy was this disconnection from self and from nature and from the cosmos, and also this um, like sort of mourning for the planet— the climate crisis. There's so many things that we're doing to the planet to, pardon my French, but like to fuck it up and then fuck it up for ourselves. And I think that there is this sort of existential despair if you look at that for too long. So that's sort of what I was getting at with part of the spiritual crisis is the sadness and and to some degree, the sort of hopelessness that you can tap into if you start really paying attention people talk all the time about the loneliness epidemic. I mean, is that for you really just a a crisis of disconnection? Is loneliness better understood as a symptom, not the cause? Um, I suppose so. I mean, you know, the loneliness got so much worse with COVID. It really took this whole kind of isolation epidemic into overdrive. Yeah. It was sort of ironic to me that, you know, I'd written a book about disconnection, isolation, and loneliness before we even really experienced that on steroids. The feeling of loneliness is a symptom of isolation. And one of the things I learned when I was researching this book that really kind of freaked me out is that when people get isolated, they get more paranoid. They get worse at trusting and bonding and being social. So that's really concerning. And I think that we did see that in COVID, but this other extra variable that you can't ignore is one of contagion. You know, a fear of contagion is a pretty basic biological construct that if you think someone is sick, you're going to be fearful of them and stay away from them. So there's this whole extra level of isolation and fear and distrust and paranoia that came from an invisible virus that anybody could have and could give to you. So I think especially the kids have not really fully bounced back from everything that happened during that time. I think it's going to be a long while before we actually even get our our arms around the consequences of that. Yeah. So I just really want to, to hammer this point home, right? That when we're talking about loneliness, we're not just talking about an existential problem or a spiritual problem. Loneliness is killing people. And the stats here are pretty staggering. I mean, can you paint the picture? What, what sorts of health problems are related to to loneliness and, and disconnection? Well, I think the easiest way for me is to go back to this idea of the fight or flight 
versus the other side, which is the parasympathetic. So parasympathetic is rest, digest, repair. So when you're not in fight or flight, you can sleep better. Your metabolism is better. You don't have high blood sugar. Your immune system works well. Your body can run its repair protocols to fix things. That all happens when you're not in fight or flight. But when you are socially isolated, you are in fight or flight. So you don't sleep well. You don't metabolize well. You have problems with your digestion. You have ulcers. You have irritable bowel, autoimmune issues, inflammatory derangement, metabolic derangement, high blood sugar, high blood pressure, obesity. Like Name a physical ailment, and I will tell you that it is worse if you're in fight or flight than if you're in parasympathetic. The isolation is a pro-inflammatory state. Fight or flight is pro-inflammatory. You want to do everything to be anti-inflammatory, right? That's why you do things like yoga and meditation and eating whole foods and being social. These things are all anti-inflammatory because they put you in the parasympathetic side, which is where oxytocin is. Where you don't want to be, where you're isolated, is all adrenaline and cortisol. It's bad for your body and it is bad for your social life. And that is merely just a result of feeling alone. I mean, the the mind-body connection here is is a lot to unpack. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, you even say in the book that social isolation has a lethality on par with smoking roughly 15 cigarettes a day. Yeah. Social isolation is really bad for your body. It's also bad for your behavior. You know, you're more likely to soothe yourself with alcohol or drugs or have addiction issues. And all the numbers there are, are trending in the wrong direction. Yeah. And now, actually, the latest data on deaths of despair is that the kids are really taking the brunt of it. Yeah. And there's more teen suicides, child suicides, and a lower life expectancy for kids now because of homicides and gun deaths and suicides. So the numbers all look pretty shitty. It's hard to know what's going to reverse it. I put a little bit of faith in some of the drugs that I talk about in Good Chemistry that are anti-inflammatory, including things like cannabis and psychedelics, that they have direct anti-inflammatory effects and can help sort of correct some of the damage that's being done by being in isolation. And, you know, some of these drugs do give you a sense of being connected or else just the sense that everything is connected. And, you know, anytime you have a sense of awe, being held by something bigger than you or being part of something bigger than you, you are more likely to be in this parasympathetic anti-inflammatory state. I absolutely want to talk about the therapeutic potential of psychedelics, but I do want to ask you before we get to that about antidepressant drugs. Mm -hmm. You talk about this in the book. You say that these sorts of drugs, they can only do so much. Yeah. I do prescribe regular old antidepressants. They do make it a little easier to smile and harder to cry. And if you're in a really bad place and you're not functional and you can't get out of bed and you're not eating or, you know, attending to your grooming or your job, then you might need medicines. But over the years, we've just sort of lowered the threshold for who needs medicines and for how long and it's gone to something that I was calling a while back, like cosmetic psychopharmacology. Yeah. One of the problems with the SSRIs, those medicines like Prozac, Lexapro, Zoloft, Paxil, those, those medicines in particular, is if you push on the dose a little bit, people get more and more numb. They don't feel depressed, but they also don't feel anything very deeply. It's hard to cry. It's hard to sort of be touched by things. My patients will say things like, I knew that that was sad and I should cry, but I couldn't cry. But I knew it was sad. So there's still like the intellectual piece. You are significantly less horny. It's harder to climax. You know, when you fall in love with somebody, you get kind of obsessed and you think about them a lot and you may sort of chase them down. And there's a sense of like desire and longing. You want to be with somebody and there's like some angst and some urgency. When you take an SSRI, you lose almost all of that. You know, you lose the capacity to have the the obsessiveness or the angst or the urgency. And so I would argue that the SSRIs are making it harder to fall in love, to mate, you say something that really stuck with me in the book. I mean, it was something to the effect that these sorts of drugs, these SSRIs, that they're not designed to help people connect. They're designed to help us not mind. Being disconnected. Yeah. Yes. To not mind that we're disconnected. Exactly. And that, 
the point is not to judge anyone who takes these sorts of drugs. I'm, I'm sure they've been very helpful for lots of people and, and whatever works, God bless you. <laughs> you know, we, we're all doing what we have to do to get out of bed in the morning. Yeah, definitely. Right. But there are constraints here and there are trade-offs here and it's important to, to talk about them. Yeah. So, you know, I would say that not only the antidepressants make it so that you don't mind being disconnected, I would say that our devices are also acting that way. Yeah. They're this sort of synthetic sense that you're in a community when you're on Facebook or Twitter and like, these are my friends and I like what they're saying. You know, it's giving you the illusion that you are held in a community, but it is synthetic. And there's a very popular quote in addiction medicine, which is that you can never get enough of something that almost works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It mimics connection, but it's not connection. Yeah. And so you end up, because you're not getting the quality, you go for quantity and you scroll and you scroll and you scroll and you like and you like and you like, because you're hoping if you just get enough, you'll have that sense of community and satiety. But we don't. We just doom scroll. And and obviously, there's all kinds of bad news on there. While you're scrolling and looking for connection, you're also hearing about traumatic things that are happening halfway across the globe yeah. that 20 years ago, 40 years ago, you would not necessarily know about every heartbreaking thing that is happening everywhere all the time. And we're not built to take on that level of trauma. The doom is bad for us. Yeah. And the feeling of impotence in the face of it is also very bad for us. Right. What can I possibly do? I'm powerless. We're going to take one last quick break. But when we come back, I'll ask Julie about a topic we're both passionate about. The use of psychedelic therapies to treat mental illness. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. What would you say is the most promising thing about psychedelic therapy right now? How, how can they help with this crisis of disconnection that we're talking about? Well, I mean, there's, there's two drugs in particular that are going through FDA approval process. And the first one that will likely be approved is MDMA, methylene dioxymethamphetamine. It's better known as ecstasy or molly. And MDMA will be FDA approved to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. And by the way, this is MDMA-assisted therapy. So they get the drug, but they also get psychotherapy. So MDMA for PTSD will probably get approved in 2024, maybe 2025. And then psilocybin, which is sort of the main ingredient in magic mushrooms, that will be FDA approved for either treatment-resistant depression or just regular old depression, probably 2025, 2026. So these things are really coming down the pike. They are finally going to be sort of part of the uh, armamentarium of medicines that we're going to be using in psychiatry. I'm really excited about that. I mean, I've been sort of interested in psychedelics since I was a teenager and talking about them being used therapeutically since I was an undergrad. So, you know, it's like 30, 40 years I've been waiting for this to happen. Yeah. But it's a really exciting time to be a psychiatrist because we've got some new tools. I mean, you know, people are excited about ketamine and, that, you know, if ketamine excites you, you ain't seen nothing yet. Wait till these other medicines come out. I mean, to me, 
Ketamine is a great place to start. First of all, you don't have to get off your meds to try ketamine, whereas a lot of other things like MDMA or ayahuasca, Ibogaine, you really have to get off your meds first, which is very tricky. But what's nice about ketamine is it's getting people used to the idea that they can have an altered state of consciousness that will affect their mood and their depression. And the infrastructure of the clinics or even entertaining the idea of at-home use with some virtual supervision. All of these things happen during COVID, and I think it ends up doing like sort of bushwhacking to set the stage for medicines that are coming down the pike that are going to be significantly more efficacious. Is there a simple way to explain what is going on in the brain during an intense psychedelic experience? I mean, you say in the book that it resets the brain. What what does that mean? Well, I guess I would say no, there's no simple way. (laughs) But first of all, with MDMA, you can really say like it increases oxytocin, right? So you're going to get more trusting and bonding. It massively increases serotonin. So you're going to have a sense of satiety and comfort and not much anxiety. And then it also increases dopamine. So you're going to pay attention, want to connect, want to talk, want to explore. You know, one of the things I say about MDMA is like, I couldn't design a better drug to facilitate psychotherapy than something that keeps you awake, alert, calm. You feel comfortable enough to explore your trauma. You are awake and alert enough to verbalize and share what's going on. You will remember the session afterwards. That's great for processing trauma and working through for PTSD. Now, Psilocybin, I would say, is more complicated, even though it only acts, basically, most of the action seems to be at this one receptor, which is a serotonin 2A receptor. It still gets very, very complicated. And that receptor actually crosstalks with a lot of other systems. But one of the things that happens with psychedelics like LSD or psilocybin is that there are parts of your brain that are always kind of muttering and going along and sort of creating like a running narrative. The default mode network, right? Yeah. And so the default mode network is a little bit like, how am I doing? How am I doing? How did I do yesterday? How am I going to do tomorrow? What's my status in this group? It's very focused on yourself. And when the default mode network sort of disintegrates or falls apart, the other parts of the brain get a chance to come to the fore. And also there are more connections between those parts. So it's almost like if you have a classroom and the same kids are always raising their hand and always being called on and the teacher finally says, I'm not going to call on you guys anymore. Why don't the rest of the class talk amongst yourselves and then you raise your hands? And so you get to hear from some other members of the class and maybe members that don't usually communicate. And so the brain is in a more sort of fluid, flexible, creative state. There's less cognitive rigidity. There's a lot of diagnoses in psychiatry that are based on cognitive rigidity. You have an idea about the way things are, and that's the end of it. So like if you have obsessive compulsive disorder and you know, you're know you very fixated on symmetry or the number three, and you believe that if you do these rituals, then you will be safe. Or if you have an addiction and you believe that if you have this drink or drug, then you will be safe. Then you will feel okay. It's this rigid way of thinking. And then you introduce something that adds flexibility and takes away some of that rigidity. And it's sort of like, well, what if what if I don't do that? And is that really true that I have to do that? And so there's just some room for, might there be another way to look at this, to experience this? And sometimes that is really enough for massive changes in symptoms and quality of life and behavior to happen. Well, in addition to all this neuroplasticity where these parts of the brain that don't normally communicate, start communicating. I mean, you have what people call these experiences of ego death. Yeah. Which can be a, a very terrifying, disorienting experience. I mean, I've I've done quite a bit of experimenting with psychedelics. Um, I, I don't know if I've experienced a, a proper ego death. I have had the experience of feeling like the boundary between your mind and the world just dissolves. Right. And is it that sort of experience that allows someone to feel this deep sense of connection because this illusion of separateness just disintegrates and you can grasp that you can, you can feel it even if it's only briefly and that at least throws open the door to a different kind of perspective or a different kind of attitude definitely and i'm glad you mentioned neuroplasticity I and mean, because that is specifically this idea that your brain is making different connections and oxytocin enables neuroplasticity and so one of the things with mdma where you get these high levels of oxytocin during the experience is you really are putting the brain in a very plastic state similar to those critical learning periods that we have in adolescence 
if you think that you're a separate person and I am me and this is me and I am solid and that is the world outside of me and they are two separate things. And then you take a drug where those messages of I am me and this is me and I am solid are are no longer available to you. Now you have to figure out where your boundary is and where you stop and the rest of the world starts. And there is a specific feeling called oceanic boundlessness, which is the sense that you are just like a drop in an ocean and you go on forever. And, you know, if you study physics at all or physical chemistry or anything like this and you learn about atoms and electrons... It is kind of true that separation sort of is an illusion and everything is sort of spinning and in motion. But certainly when you're altered and you have this sense that there's something bigger that is holding you, like I said, it puts you into this this state of awe. And one of the things that happens in parasympathetic and the state of awe, neuroplasticity, is learning, deep learning changing the way that you that you approach things and you think about things. And I've had a lot of patients stop problematic behaviors, primarily drug use, just stop these sort of self-defeating, self-sabotaging behaviors because they had a psychedelic experience that gave them a completely different perspective. Certainly one of the great rewards of psychedelics is is the experience of something so strange and mystical that it can really only invoke just total awe. And, you know, for me, for someone who never really believed in God or anything supernatural, that was the closest thing to divinity I think I've ever come within a mile of. Yeah. And there's another great young quote in the book. It says that if our religion is based on salvation, our chief emotions will be fear and trembling. If our religion is based on wonder, our chief emotion will be gratitude. And I love that. Yeah, I love that too. That experience of feeling so small is really liberating. Yeah. I feel like these sort of monotheic religions, this idea that like, if you live a certain way now, then when you die, then you get the good stuff. Then you go to heaven where all your needs are going to be met and it's lovely. And, and you know, I feel like psychedelics say like, heaven is now, heaven is here. You don't have to die to be in the Garden of Eden. We are in the Garden of Eden now. You know, I think sometimes the psychedelics, it's almost like subversive because it gives people a direct experience of what you could call the divine, you know, or just like, I don't know, Alex Gray and Alison Gray, they talk about like the the universal lattice work of like light and energy that surrounds everything. It's like you can have a direct experience of divinity or of the divine without the priest, without the church, you know, without the holy water. And that is subversive. You know, it's changing the power structure of how it's supposed to be. We should say, and really not in some perfunctory sense, but because it really is true, there is an enormous difference between casual recreational use of psychedelics and the sort of guided therapeutic use of psychedelics we're talking about here. You know, I really cannot stress enough the importance of of what happens after <laughs> these experiences, what people call integration. Right. We should definitely talk about, about yeah. integration. Integration is sort of working with whatever your insights were, whatever your experience was, but to spend time unpacking it, processing it, digesting it. There are indigenous models that are in a group where the integration is sort of built into the experience that you process as a group. There is uh, the 15-year-old gal who takes LSD and rolls around laughing her ass off with her with her high school friends when they skip a day of school. I found that therapeutic. <laughs> it was good for me to have that level of joy and bonding with my friends. So I'm not going to say that recreational isn't therapeutic because anything that puts you in parasympathetic is therapeutic. You know, if you have a sense of play, that's good for your body. So I'm not going to say that it's not therapeutic, but I am going to say that the recreational model, because of our drug policy, is more dangerous. These drugs, more than any other drugs, they really depend on context. They depend on what your state of mind is and what your environment is. Clearly, people are taking it with the recreational model. Or sometimes, you know, people go to ayahuasca circles and then they've got sort of like an indigenous ritual model. But those aren't our models, right? Those are models that develop in different cultures and we're going to need to develop our own. We're going to need our own model, right? And so I do write about group therapy because I think it is a natural fit. And you can definitely 
prep people ahead of time. This is what you're going to expect. This is how long the drug lasts. This is what it might feel like for you. Like you can do all that prep in a group and you could potentially do some post-debriefing integration in a group. I mean, you're going to get into issues of confidentiality and things like that. Not everybody's going to be comfortable in a group. But a lot of people, uh, you know, again, I would come back to ayahuasca circles as an example. You know, you go away for the weekend and there's maybe like eight or 12 people there with you and everybody has the ayahuasca that night. And then the next morning they all talk about their experience. That's a comfortable model. You know, you go away for two or three days, you come home, you've got some new friends, you've had some new experiences. Look, I've been to retreats like that. And the problem is that when you're in those sorts of contexts, right, you're inhabiting this shared space where everyone has this sort of the same intentionality and there's an openness to it that, you know, in many ways we are all contextual creatures, right? But you come back to the regular world, the default world where people are very much in their own bubbles. They are very isolated. There isn't that connection. There isn't that shared intentionality, and it can be very alienating. So in terms of the experience of isolation, the experience of loneliness, the experience of disconnection, do you think it's possible through these sorts of experiences with psychedelics that merely through a change in our our orientation to the world that we can transcend that and no longer feel lonely, even if our material circumstances haven't really changed all that much. What has changed is the way we understand ourselves and our relationship to people around us and the world, really. You know, one thing that happens if you take enough, (laughs) uh, if you do have this ego disintegration, um, a lot of times what happens after that ego disintegration is that people aren't as afraid of death. They're not afraid of not existing anymore because they had a taste of non-existence Um, I would argue that if people knew when and how they were going to die, they would have a lot less anxiety. And if they had a taste of it ahead of time and saw that it actually felt pretty good, they would have a lot less anxiety. But I just, you know, this issue of coming home and and, and sort of having a rough reentry is a very real risk. And one of the reasons why we talk about integration, when you leave that bubble and you come back to your life, you really need support for sort of, you know, keeping your light going or keeping that message going. And, um, you know, I was talking to Rosalind Watts, who was involved with the studies in London at Imperial College, where they were giving psilocybin to depressed people. And a lot of those people got better, but some of them didn't. And one of the reasons why they didn't is that they were going back into a really demoralizing, depressing environment, and they they couldn't sustain the gains that they had made. So. One of the things that they found helpful was when they started running cohorts through at the Netherlands retreat called Synthesis. They would run like a cohort of eight or 12 people through, and then those people would stay in touch afterwards. They would have virtual meetings. They would text each other. They would be in group texts. And that really seemed to help. So I think, you know, the the group treatment model really has legs because I think that it can help fight some of that isolation and and reentry difficulty that happens. I mean, look... (laughs) The question itself is a bit naive, and I get that. And, you know, I'm, I'm asking in the spirit of seriousness with the caveat that there's no panacea, right? I don't think that if, if you know, we dosed everyone, uh, the world would be fixed <laughs> and great and grand. But how much potential do you see as someone who is so involved in this space? How much potential do you see in psychedelic therapy, not to solve, but to mitigate perhaps some of our deepest problems as individuals and really as a civilization, because I really don't think it's crazy to suggest that disconnection from each other, from ourselves, from the natural world is um, as profound a civilizational crisis as any we face. Yeah. You know, I don't want to sound too much like a proselytizer. I'm sure I have over the years. I wrote the foreword for a book called Can Psychedelics Save the World? So, I mean, there is part of me that is like, you know, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. And if everybody could just experience the love and see how there's so much love in the world and we're all interconnected, then, you know, we can all sing Kumbaya and be a better society. And there, there is some, you know, rose-colored glasses, eternal optimist part of me that does think that it could help be part of the solution. But (laughs) I am getting a little disappointed or demoralized when I see how much capitalism is creeping into every corner of this space. You know, interdependence is not a very capitalistic way to think. 
And I, I am very active in the capitalist end of things, <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm advising a psychedelic VC company, you know, so I'm as much a part of the problem as the solution. But it's, we're living in a sort of dog eat dog, I got mine, you get yours kind of a culture, especially in America. But we're dealing with drugs that are unifying and that are communal in their nature. So I, uh, God knows how this is all going to play out. I don't know. I mean, it may be fitting that we we kind of circled back here at the end on this note, I mean, about capitalism and individualism. I mean, one of the things that does give me pause, the materialist in me, when we talk about psychedelics, we start to drift more and more away from this ambition of changing the material world around us. And we turn more and more inwards. We just abandon the project of changing the material world and, and just try to go inward and change our perspective on the world so that we can better adapt to it. And maybe these things aren't mutually incompatible, but I, I, you know, I do worry about focusing too much on the individual um, and losing sight of the collective project, which is really the political project of making the world more fair and, and more just. Yeah, I mean, I agree with what you're saying, and I think there's no question that uh, this is one of the inherent sort of kind of oxymorons of this space. Uh, something new is going to be forged in this process. And it's going to be sort of a painful, difficult, ecstatic birth. Um, I'm I'm here to midwife. And uh, I know I'm not alone in that. It's important work, you know. Again, look, the reality is that a lot of the world we have today does militate against the experience of connection. And if there is a way for the individual to get outside of that and to feel more in tune with, with themselves and with other people and with the world, that is an unmitigated good, and we should maximize it as much as possible. And that's really what we're talking about here. It's not some kind of panacea. Yeah. But it can help. Definitely. You know, some of the advice in Good Chemistry, which was before COVID, was like, put your computer down, go outside, go be in nature, go be with people, you know, hug, kiss, eye contact. Some of the advice we just couldn't do during COVID. You know, we were all home, and we all kind of gave ourselves permission to just get on our devices and, you know, watch Tiger King and Great British Bake Off and everything else. And now I feel like we're really coming out of it. I'm traveling more than ever before. I'm going to conferences and retreats. A lot of people are really prioritizing physical gatherings, face-to-face ceremonies and things like that. On the other hand, uh, a lot of us got really used to (laughs) sitting on our couch. We are working remotely. I mean, I've even got like patients that I'm working with who don't want to come into the office. You know, everybody's gotten pretty comfortable at home. So I I don't know how all this is going to shake out. We got more comfortable with our devices and being isolated during COVID. And we were already doing a lot of that beforehand. Go outside and play. Okay. On that note, once again, the book is called Good Chemistry, The Science of Connection from Soul to Psychedelics. Dr. Julie Holland, thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for this opportunity, Sean. Eric Janikas is our producer. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. I'm always here to talk about psychedelics and mental health. I hope you are too, because we're going to do more of it. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at thegrayarea at vox.com. If you appreciated this episode, share it with your friends on all the socials. It can be the last thing you do before you slam your laptop shut and go outside to reconnect with nature or whatever it is that you do. New episodes of The Gray Area drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.